0: Some words have been robbed of all meaning. They've been used, abused, mangled, contorted, weaponised and stripped of context. If we can't agree on what words mean, then we can't agree on much. This is Origin Story. In each episode, we take a key term from the political or cultural discourse and tell the story of where it came from, what happened to it and what it means today. By exploring the history of the ideas, we'll try to get a clearer understanding of where we are now. My name's Dorian Linsky, the author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and The Ministry of Truth. And my name's Ian Dunt. I'm the author of How to Be a Liberal and I'm a columnist at the Iron newspaper. So Ian, this will probably be our least typical episode because even though the term origin story was actually popularised by comic books, we're not really trying to define the word superhero so much as unpack the political ideas and superhero stories, and the meaning of them. What would you say we are looking to find out? I guess you, you have at
1: the moment this massive cultural product, which, I mean, it's probably at the moment the most successful cultural product there is, arguably, and it's yeah. watched all over the world, different cultures, different classes. And there's an awful lot of chatter of, you know, they'll go up to Scorsese, do you like Marvel films? And he says no, and then everyone goes into, they have a big debate about, mm. do you like them? Which seems to me like about the least interesting possible debate you can have. And the other one is, what, if anything, do these things say Like, you know, is it this quite fascistic, might is right, you know, solve everything with violence, you know, the strong man does it. Or actually does it have this quite kind of left wing idea of social responsibility and diversity baked into it? So, really, that, to me, is what we're here to do. And I think that what you find when you look into the history of it is that what happened at the beginning is encoded in the cells of this thing and really becomes pivotal even now. The debates in late 1930s seem to me almost identical to debates people having about Black Panther or Wonder Woman or the Avengers when they see the films coming out of the cinema. So, for instance... Uh, Take the film The Joker, released sort of a couple of years ago, which was treated as this sort of quite right-wing piece of propaganda, as if it was almost sort of like a note from an incel, In fact, as if it was supporting incels, really, or an expression of their creed. And a few years before that, you had Black Panther, which was treated as this sort of pivotal cultural moment um, for sort of racial awareness and representation on screen. Now, those are political debates playing out, bubbling as part of the day-to-day debate
0: through the media medium of this genre. And meanwhile, in the comic books themselves, where there are lots of arguments about um, whether it's too woke to have, you know, a female Thor or whatever, you know, or a black Spider-Man, a lot of those arguments, they do involve you really going back to the origins of these characters, the people that created them, the intentions behind them, because so many people who don't like a particular direction will go, this is untrue to the character, almost as if it's like the US Constitution or the Bible. <laughs> and so you do have to go back to these sort of original texts in order to sort of understand who these what these characters are and to understand the arguments. I mean, the reason I'm so fascinated by comic books as an art form is they're the only ones where you, you get these characters created in a particular place and time by particular people. And then they are handed over to generations of other writers and artists. And it mm-hmm. goes on for decades with no end point. <laughs> <laughs> and some characters you know, seem to remain quite consistent. And other characters, they actually start off as kind of duds and then they become what they now are like a long time later because of a particular writer that suddenly gets like oh this is you know Daredevil for example mm you know, in the 60s and, and sort of early 70s is kind of, I mean, it's not the daredevil that, that is in the movies or on TV or whatever. And mm-hmm. there are obviously other famous characters that people do things with, you know, like Sherlock Holmes, whatever. But you don't mess with Sherlock Holmes that much. Like Conan Doyle is like, okay, this is I know what I'm doing. This is the guy <laughs> that I have created. Mm-hmm. And some comic book characters are pretty strong and sturdy from the start. And others, they just kind of layer, you know, sometimes decades later.
1: I guess the closest comparison would be something like James Bond. But, you know, the debate that people have when they change him, is he comedy, is he deadly serious and violent, you know? But the debate that they end up having is what is the core of the character? When people talk about race and sex with James Bond, they're like, which bits have to be there, for instance, you know? Does he have to be an establishment figure? And I think you get it there, this kind of bubbling, vivacious, boisterous sense of creativity that comes from a character that has passed down generations. And you're just trying to assess, you know, is there a core there? How much can they change? And how much do they need to change?
0: And, you know, we, of course, we are, we are fans. We are. Broadly speaking. We should, we should speaking. admit that up front. We
1: should also say that we're going to, if you're not a fan, this should hopefully still be interesting. We are not going to yeah. nerd out particularly hard here. We're going to avoid any any of that. I mean, obviously, I'll be winking to Dorian and doing these kind of comic book gang signs. But <laughs> you will never be able to see that <laughs> stuff. But really, this nerd is sign. just the politics. Like, just the politics. Yeah, it, I'm just doing Ian, bats, you
0: know, like spiders. Ian, Ian is dressed as Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to kind of start with two quotes. One, as always, from the OED. Superhero, a person with extraordinary heroic attributes, a benevolent fictional character with superhuman powers, typically one who features in a comic strip or film. First citation is the Daily Mail from 1899. Huh. Where someone says, if Colonel Picard is a hero, Matthew Dreyfus is a superhero. Oh my God, it's about the Dreyfus affair. Oh my God,
1: that is so perfect. I could never have comprehended it. That's insane. I mean, given what we're about to
0: talk about, yeah, yeah. that is in- absolutely insane. And in 1917, we have First World War airmen described as superheroes. Huh. And so this is all sort of pre-Superman. You know, it was created in, in 1938. The other thing I want to say is, is coming up to the present day and thinking how dominant superheroes are. And we do have to kind of, we are going to be addressing a lot of these critical voices. It was one of the most important writers of superhero comics, Alan Moore, creative watchman, V for Vendetta, and a very good writer, on some of the existing characters, now hates superheroes most of the comic book industry. Just incredibly... I mean, his interviews are just incredibly, incredibly negative. So he was in 2016. says, I think the impact of superheroes on popular culture is both tremendously embarrassing and not a little worrying. <laughs> <laughs> While these characters were originally perfectly suited to stimulating the imaginations of their 12 or 13-year-old audience, today's franchised Uber mention aimed at a supposedly adult audience, seem to be serving some kind of different function and fulfilling different needs. Primarily, mass-market superhero movies seem to be abetting an audience who do not wish to relinquish their grip on A, their relatively reassuring childhoods, or B, the relatively reassuring 20th century. The continuing popularity of these movies, to me, suggests some kind of deliberate, self-imposed state of emotional arrest, combined with an numbing condition of cultural stasis that can be witnessed in comics movies popular music right across the cultural spectrum
1: i love alan moore and he was a huge influence on me growing up i have to tell you that that quote is almost identical to many of the quotes in the early 20th century (laughs) attacking comics as a form of sort of juvenile delinquency that arrests the capacity for thought And it's quite extraordinary. And obviously, I think disappointing and short-sighted to to see it coming from from him. And of course, he has his reasons. Sure. We should mention here that he has a series of contractual complaints against DC Comics and and the use of his characters, primarily on the basis of what you were talking about earlier, if the character is passed on and someone else does
0: something with it. And
1: his complaint was, I don't really want you to do that.
0: I feel like I have ownership over them. So obviously, the superhero story as we know it, it seemed to start with Superman in 1938. But I just want to wind the clock back a little bit to the first time that I come across the superhero being treated seriously. In 1930, a writer named Philip Wiley publishes a science fiction novel called Gladiator about a professor who experiments on his son in the womb and raises a Superman called Hugo Danner who says, I can jump higher than a house. I can run faster than a train. I can pull up big trees and push them over. <laughs> that's, that's quite on point. That is quite on okay. point. Wiley was a rather kind of self-admiring, misanthropic character. Very impressive in many ways. But he thinks that a man would be resented by the public. Hugo conceals his powers most of the time because whenever he uses them, basically people hate him. He is a giant compelled to stoop and pander to live at all among his feeble fellows. <laughs> so he fights in World War One. Then he's trying to use his powers for good, tries to lend his support, first a congressman and then a communist. Both of them turn out to be cynical and corrupt. Hmm. He goes to the president who says society cannot afford to permit a man like you to go at large until it has a thoroughly effective defence against you. And he ends up dying bitter and alone, struck by lightning. It's not the most persuasive ending. <laughs> but St- struck by lightning always feels like you've given up. You really, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just like, I don't know. And that, then it's the end of struck by lightning. But I find it really interesting here is this. In 1930, the assumption is a superhuman would be resented. And Hugo's dad tells him, they fear you. So you see, you've got to be good and kind and considerate to justify all that strength. Oh, wow. It really is almost line for line, something you could imagine Superman's dad saying. And Hugo asks himself, and I think this raises... These really interesting questions about what you would do with superpowers. I think the reason I find this book so interesting is because the rules aren't established yet. Mm -hmm. It's literally someone coming across an idea of what if there was a Superman? And he asked himself, what would you do if you were the strongest man in the world, the strongest thing in the world, mightier than the machine? And his answer is, I would scorn the universe and turn it to my own ends. I would be a criminal. I would rip open banks and gut them. I would kill and destroy. (laughs) I would be a secret, invisible blight. I would set out to stamp crime off the earth. I would be a super detective, following and summarily punishing every criminal until no one dared to commit a felony. What should I do? What will I do?
1: Just so everyone knows, I mean, Dorian long ago stopped reading the quote, and now this is just his (laughs) internal monologue.
0: My ambition, my aspiration diary. (laughs) I knew I shouldn't have bought you that for Christmas. But it's, it's interesting. he's just like, well, should I be a criminal? Should I be a ruthless vigilante? Should I be a dictator? And there's no evidence that, that Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster knew Gladiator. But then Wiley's, uh, not quite his next novel, but a later novel, very successful, When Worlds Collide, was about people building a spaceship to escape the world before <laughs> it blows up. <laughs> uh, which, again, you know... There's Superman parallels there. And so it's interesting because I think it says that you can take this basic idea and you can go in another direction that it was not sort of inevitable that Superman would be such a noble spirit and a a beloved figure Mm -hmm. in the world of the comics. So Ian, this is 1930, now we're getting to 1938, we've had like the depression. FDR, the Popular Front, the rise of fascism, what is Superman in 1938?
1: Well, he's created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Suster, as you just spoke about. They're these two Jewish nerds from Cleveland. Action Comics 1 comes out in June 1938. The background to this is comics as a medium is very, very young at this stage. You've got this doubling of the US population between 1870s and 1900, and that's primarily immigration. It's primarily happening in the cities, and you've got these newspaper magnates, among them sort of Joseph Pulitzer, who are just thinking, well, how do we get this market? You know, they're very concentrated. It's good for local papers. Um, and one of their solutions, because the English is often not very good, for the people arriving in the U.S. is cartoons and developing into comics. Mm. And as soon as this medium comes in, it becomes a moral problem for sort of cultural authorities. One of the first strips you get, it's called Hogan's Alley, but everyone calls it Yellow Kid. And it's sort of a loving familial thing of immigrant youth in this dilapidated city, sort of barefoot, violent, concerned with base pleasures, barely able to speak, except in this kind of pidgin English. Whenever you see an authority figure, the police come in, they always get their comeuppance. So even the very earliest stories are told from an outsider point of view. And most importantly, they're told by outsiders themselves. And this, I think, is key to the whole comic story, that it's essentially an outcast medium. It's developed as a medium for immigrants. It's primarily written and illustrated by immigrants, by outsiders. And it's written for other outsiders. So you get this quote, I mean, so this is Will Eisner, Jewish. I mean, probably I would say the person who could mostly claim to having defined the sort of form of comics really yeah. in that same period. He said there were Jews in this medium because it was a crap medium. And in that marketplace that still had racial overtones, it was an easy medium to get into. You hear the same thing from Joe Kubert, Polish son of a butcher, 1930s, pivotal figure in the history of comics illustration. He said, If you wanted to do comics, even if you didn't really have any talent at all, there was work for you. The doors were open to one and all. That was the thing. This was somewhere where ethnic minorities could work, where they could get jobs. And that's exactly who, J- who Siegel and, and Schuster were. and. They kind of imbued that Jewishness, that sense of being an outsider into the strip. This is Bob Oxner. He's a contemporary of theirs in the comic scene. He said, There's no question in my mind that Jerry saw Superman as a kind of projection of his own self-image or his own fantasies about himself. Jerry was Jewish, as I am. Like a lot of people in comics in those days, Superman was the story of an unfairly denigrated person who knows that he had the ability to prevail in the end, whoever that person may be. And that outsider thing there, you see, I don't think it's not purely sort of ethnic. It's also about a personality type. Like, you take Clark Kent. He's the, the, the secret identity of Superman. He's sort of very nervous, spectacled. Well He's, he's
0: Nebish, isn't he? I mean, yeah. He's not, <laughs> yeah. he's not, he's not yeah. Jewish, but that's the archetype. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah that's exactly right. And that, you would think, is probably the true personality of the character, The Superman is almost the outfit he puts on. But certainly it seems to talk about, you know, why is it these nerds writing it this way, you know, nervous, uncertain of themselves. The other thing to say about this comic, and this is a bit that people really don't talk about at all and is extraordinary when you read them, is that it is basically socialist propaganda. And I mean on point. There's no hiding away. You know, the people he goes for in these first few issues, they're not supervillains. They're mine owners. They're arms dealers. They're wife beaters. He goes to say people wrongly accused of a crime. Take this scene where Clark Kent is in court. He's watching a mother speak to a judge about her son who's just been convicted. The mother says, of course he talks tough. What's more, he is tough, Your Honor. But he's only like all the other boys in our neighborhood. Hard, resentful, underprivileged. He's my only son, sir. He might have been a good boy, except for his environment. He still might if you'll be merciful. And Clark Kent sits there and thinks, the mother's right, but if I know the court of law, her plea hasn't a chance. And then goes off and, you know, takes them out of jail and, you know, it's of like out takes on the mobsters, all of this sort of stuff. It has this really trenchant left-wing position and this comic just explodes. I mean, very, very quickly, Action Comics and Superman, the spin-off title, selling about one million copies. It's syndicated in newspapers. By the way, when I say one million copies, remember that at the time they estimated that kids would pass on their comics to about six to ten other kids. Yeah. So you, you really are dealing with
0: about ten million, possibly. Well, also, like, I was already struck by how fast people were kind of responding to that so these are the characters that were created in the immediate wake of superman mm. 1939 batman captain marvel human torch submariner 1940 captain America and robin 1941 wonder woman aquaman plastic man green arrow mm-hmm it's one of those things, almost like that happens in pop music sometimes where a song comes out and then everybody else is just like, mm-hmm. oh, we well, got to sound like that. Like, the Beatles go psychedelic. It's like, everyone's like, got to be psychedelic. <laughs> you know, and a lot of these are characters that, particularly with DC, that you're still seeing in movies now. And they're all basically like, damn, we need a Superman.
1: I mean, all of these, all of these characters are still around, I think. And, and they're all very successful characters. It, it, this is called the Golden Age for a reason. I mean, there's an extraordinary spasm of creativity that wouldn't really be seen again in comics until the 1960s with Stan Lee and the kind of the Marvel heroes people know now from the films. Batman isn't that interesting when you read the original ones. It's, it's not really political. There's not much of any note there except for the genius and the design. But Wonder Woman. Mm. I mean, you read 1941's Wonder Woman. It's just i don't even know where to start it's one of the weirdest things i have ever read it's by william Moul- Moulton marston he's a psychologist he invented the lie detector he lived with his wife and their girlfriend all together in a polyamorous relationship in the 40- i don't even know what that would have been like in the 30s and 40s but somehow managed to do it It was not called polyamory then. It most certainly was not <laughs> i imagine it was called perversion and a capital crime of some sort it, he's obsessed with the notion of submission and dominance and unfortunately when you're reading these comics which are after all four children i think sometimes kind of noticeably aroused <laughs> by, by the stuff that he's writing about it's pretty weird stuff let me put it there's a lot of spanking that goes on in early wonder woman comics now there is a feminist position statement behind all of this stuff that you can take with as much seriousness as you like although i do believe that he was thinking about it very carefully mm. I mean he said, Boys, young and old, satisfy their wish thoughts by reading comics. If they go crazy over Wonder Woman, it means they're longing for a beautiful, exciting girl who is stronger than they are. Wonder Woman satisfies the subconscious, elaborately disguised desire of males to be mastered by a woman who loves them. And again, I think even in that sentence he seems half aroused, half intellectual.
0: At the same There's time. another way of talking about strong female characters, isn't <laughs> yeah. there? That's not the only way to frame it. (laughs) There
1: is something funny about his writing there, something I quite like. I'm taking this from an intro to one of the early stories. All of the weirdness and the kind of ickiness and also the clever politics, all of it's in here. But also the beauty in the language. Prisons that make people happy. Strange ways of living on a planet where women love their bondage and refuse to rule. The cruel despotism of masculine aggressiveness versus the cool, clever bravery of that beautiful girl, the far famed Amazon princess Wonder Woman. Again, I mean, it's not fun to read. It's hard to read, but it is like staring at this extraordinary cultural artefact of complete political, psychological and sexual lunacy. You
0: were saying that those early Superman comics are sort of socialist propaganda. Like you're mm-hmm. not saying that, not in critical terms. Just no, saying no, they're like, good. Yeah, they're good. Well. Yeah, they're quite good. William Marston said, frankly, Wonder Woman is psychological propaganda for the new type of woman who, I believe, should rule the world. Hmm. So hmm. quite sort of blatant. And then if we're talking propaganda, then you've got December, 1940, we see the arrival of Captain America, <laughs> <laughs> socking Hitler in the jaw, explicitly in favor of pre-Pearl Harbor of US intervention mm-hmm. in World War II, created by Joe Simon, born Jaime Simon, and Jack Kirby, born Jacob Kurtzberg, mm-hmm. working for publisher Marv Goodman. Mm-hmm. All second generation Jewish immigrants, Obviously, if we're talking about why you might want intervention in World War Two, mm-hmm. that is a huge. You know, that's where the kind of Jewishness is not just about being outsider; it's not just about that assimilation anxiety, all the stuff that that Michael Chabon covers in The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which mm-hmm. I guess is the golden age of comic books for people who don't read comic books. Right? Yes, yeah. so that's a part <laughs> of it. But here, you've also got like, okay we really want to kind of smash Hitler. And Joe Simon said, the villain came first. Hitler was the perfect bad guy, better than any we could have invented. Captain America was created to be his ultimate foil. Superman also fights the Nazis. Batman mm-hmm. probably does. They all do, don't they?
1: I mean, once the war gets started, they do. But I think you always see that thing of Jewish creators and you know Jewish characters really being well ahead of Pearl Harbor and, yes. and, and pushing for this attitude.
0: Not everybody was a fan. 1940 article in the Chicago Daily News, Sterling North said this about superhero comics. Superman heroics, voluptuous females in scanty attire, blazing machine guns, hooded justice, and cheap political propaganda, that word again, mm. were to be found on almost every page. And you can imagine kids reading this just going, scanty attire and blazing machine guns? <laughs> <laughs> you, I'll, I'll deal with the political yeah, propaganda if yeah, I have whatever, to. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> obviously we're saying that all of these superheroes are anti-fascist we'll see what Batman becomes later right mm-hmm. but obviously in the context of World War II they're, they're, it's all, they're all like anti-Hitler everybody including Human Torch submarin everyone's fighting Nazis mm-hmm. but in 1945 Time magazine published an article called Our Comics Fascist, which Jesuit Professor Walter J. Ong calls Superman a superstate type of hero with definite interest in the ideologies of Herdist politics, which is obviously what everybody thought. Reading Superman, he mm. appears to have definite interest in the ideologies of herdist politics. Compares Superman to Hitler and Mussolini and accuses Wonder Woman of Hitlerite paganism. Which sounds a bit cranky, mm-hmm. but the same year you've got George Orwell. Mm -hmm. somebody sends him a package of (laughs) comics because he's interested in British comics right Mm -hmm. he's written about boys weeklies okay so it's just like we'll check out what American boys are reading and Orwell doesn't really get America so obviously not keen. So his take is quite obviously they tend to stimulate fantasies of power and in the last resort their subject matter boils down to magic and sadism. You can hardly look at a page without seeing somebody flying through the air or somebody socking somebody else on the jaw or an underclad young woman fighting for her honour and her ravisher is just as likely to be a steel robot or a 50 foot dinosaur as a human being. The whole thing is just a riot of nonsensical sensationalism. So what I mean to say is that you didn't have to be kind of on the religious right, you know, to be critical of comic books and just think you know, what is this? And particularly people who maybe weren't following them that closely. They hear Superman, they think Ubermensch. Mm-hmm. It was decided that there was something inherently fascistic, even if he's explicitly like punching Hitler. Mm. There was something a bit weird and creepy, possibly exploitative, which then leads to like a proper full blown moral panic in the 50s.
1: Yeah, it does. It really explodes. I mean, it's been bubbling away all that time. I mean It's been bubbling away from the turn of the century when those strips first appeared in newspapers. And in the background of it, I think that there is a certain element of anti-Semitism or sort of dislike of immigrants. But it's more than that, in a way, you know, it's a fear of youth culture as it first presents itself. You mm. know, in our period, of, of course, you know, you, you think of like rock and roll emerges, right? And that's when it happens. Mm. But actually, it was happening before that. It was happening from the End of the 40s, the start of the 50s. This is the pre-rock and roll, what are juvenile delinquents into? Exactly. In fact, even that phrase. You see, before that moment, they used to talk about hoodlums, this much softer phrase. And then the phrase comes in, juvenile delinquents, which has that sort of association with authority, with seriousness, with legalism, with institutional, even with, with sort of pathology. And most of this, I think, comes from this kind of sexist idea during the war of, well, the men are gone. So what the fuck happens now? Right. right, You've got kids yeah. with no father figures. Don't they just go and join gangs? Don't they become violent? You've got women on the street. Who knows which servicemen they're going to go home with tonight? You know, It's that idea of society is crumbling because all the men are gone. J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, wrote in the Los Angeles Times, "'This country is in deadly peril. A creeping rot of disintegration is eating into our nation. These are symptoms of a condition which threatens to develop a new lost generation, more hopelessly lost than any that has gone before.'"
0: It's quite funny because this is meant to be, this is the, one of the myths. The 50s was this very stable, boring time, booming economy, Mm -hmm. very cohesive society. You obviously knew about the Red Scare, but there's all these other boiling anxieties that America is falling apart at the seams at exactly the time when a lot of people would look back and go, you know, America was never stronger, never better you yeah. know, than in that yeah. post-war never
1: richer, Yeah, never richer. But yeah, there's this sense of just desperately trying to maintain society as it is, a sense of conformism. And like until now, you have childhood and then you have adulthood. And childhood is essentially the preparatory ground to create adulthood and that's it Mm -hmm. now you've got something different you've got teenagers you've got youth culture and implicit in youth culture is this idea of challenging the status quo of what went on before you of the way that older people behave you do it through music you do it through clothing the real victim though the first victim of this is is comics superheroes comics sort of fall out of favor they're replaced by crime comics and then by horror comics and in particular the comics from a company called ec which is run by a man called bill Gaines and alfenstein these comics are Incredible. Artistically, they're incredible, but most importantly, it's it's the attitude. The attitude is always that in normal society, behind closed doors, people are basically monstrous. (laughs) So you never see a happy marriage. You always see, like, the husband is, like, murdering the wife and sort of cementing her in the walls of the house, and and the woman is always sort of trying to torture cats. It's this. It's basically years before David Lynch sort of did anything in in Blue Velvet of that idea of behind the white picket fence there's depravity and terror. It was that. In fact, it's sort of summarised by the vault keeper these comics have these horror comics have these sort of hosts that introduce the stories and the vault keeper sort of says they seem nice and respectable way well
0: come on in and listen you'll be shocked can I shock you? oh please do no shock you this is from a 1948 Time magazine article called Puddles of Blood (laughs) in which a researcher claimed that every city child who was six years old in 1938 has by now absorbed an absolute minimum of 18,000 pictorial beatings, shootings, stranglings, blood puddles, <laughs> and torturings to death from comic books alone.
1: That just sounds like the cornerstone of a wholesome, young cultural education to me. I don't really see the problem. <laughs> puddles of blood. Guys, the point of origin story is to provide independent-minded and really rigorously researched information about the world around you that isn't susceptible to the kind of knee-jerk cynicism that you may or may not see on social media sites that you're staring at during your working day. If you want more of that kind of thing, if you want to support us, do go to our Patreon page. We've got various tiers of subscription and various goodies that you can get by doing so. You'll make me and Dorian particularly happy and you'll give us some justification for the fact that we haven't seen our family for three or four months.
0: And hopefully there will be a a bit of a community vibe, a sort of club vibe where sharing ideas, you're feeding back to us, uh, suggesting topics that we might discuss in future, recommending reading materials, documentaries, podcasts, so on about stuff we've already discussed, and make it a bit of a two-way street. We'd enjoy that.
1: Just search Patreon Origin Story Podcast to find out more. Always in these comics, the characters that you're sympathetic towards are the outcasts and the people who appear normal the nuclear family the the church the police these are the real enemy these are the real dangers. so there follows a a series of city bans all over the u.s of book burnings editorials against it all these comics are wrapped up together so crime horror but it all applies to superheroes and the guy that emerges to channel this is called dr frederick Wortham. he's a psychiatrist and he publishes a book in 1954 called the seduction of the innocent and his key Effort really is to link these comics with the fear around juvenile delinquency. The book is extremely poor. I mean, there's no scientific investigation, there's no formal measures to test anything, there's no control groups, the book doesn't even have endnotes, there's no corroborative support for his conclusions. And sort of most professionals at the time dismiss him. But that's not what the press does. I mean, the New York Times in its book review says Dr. Wortham has read these ugly pamphlets with the eye of a psychiatrist. It has made him an angry man who has good reasons for his anger. The New Yorker called it a formidable indictment the evidence the doctor has assembled is overpowering now he spreads it really from crime to horror but i mean he focuses on batman as this kind of homosexual propaganda and as he put it it says a subtle atmosphere of homoeroticism pervades the adventures of the mature batman and his young friend robin really his proper fear of this stuff though is not the particulars he's wrong about everything but he's kind of right about the heart of, of what the medium is like. He says, The contempt for law and police and the brutality of punishment in comics books is subconsciously translated by children into conflict with authority and they develop a special indifference to it. It's Again, that sense that it comes from the outsider, that it's about the outsider. There is a committee on juvenile delinquency, run by Senator Robert Henriksen, 1953. And that's a complete disaster really for comics Gain from EC Publishing. Very quickly afterwards you get the Comics Code Authority created that's in 1954. I mean this is self-regulation by the comics industry it is the most I- I've never seen an example of stricter regulation of creative product in my life. I mean, it says in the code, policemen, judges, government officials and respected institutions shall never be presented, never be presented in a way as to create disrespect for established authority. Respect for parents, the moral code and for honourable behaviour will be fostered. The treatment of love romance stories shall emphasise the value of the home and the sanctity of marriage. And this kills essentially the comics industry. Hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of people thrown out of work, never find it again in the industry. Mm. Sales fall through the floor. EC eventually folds after it's told by the regulator that it needs to change a black character to make him white in a science fiction story, and they refuse to do it. And eventually, the company folds. And for a moment there, it looks like comics have died, or at the very least, that any kind of creative potential in this medium has been throttled by self-regulation and
0: prurience and censorship. I I kind of want to disagree a little bit there, Mm -hmm. because what happens is, of course, that the ones that are surviving have to adapt. So the golden age is basically over the silver age, begins in 1956. And because stuff like Superman is still going, this is when stuff gets freaky and it's like, Superman needs a super dog. Mm -hmm. And Superman needs like a city in a bottle. And like a lot of this flash is introduced and all this kind of weirdness, this spacey weirdness, because like they can't do gritty crime. They can't do puddles of blood. So it's still an interesting period for comic books, even though, like I said, a lot of people never work again. You know, what's going on in DC is it's actually kind of like this weirdness, which I suppose shows that when you limit creativity so draconianly in certain areas, It springs up in some kind of mad fucking fever dream way.
1: I agree. I agree with that entirely. I think it takes years, but eventually they find that place and it's through sort of subliminal messaging of the outsiderism and it becomes easier as you get towards the 60s and it kind of hooks up around the back with hippies and with drug culture and with psychedelia towards everything. But it does take years and in those years many people's sort of careers were destroyed and the creative outlets for the industry narrowed very substantially.
0: Interesting. David Hajdu in his book The Ten Cent Plague about this whole moral panic um, with a quote from stan lee with this implicit criticism stan says i knew how to keep it simple we wanted to give kids a good time and give them something positive to enjoy we didn't want to change the world which i think sort of sets up you know the marvel era it's very harsh i mean that book is wonderful i truly love
1: that book but that's a very harsh assessment and i don't think a very accurate one of what goes on at marvel
0: no but i think it's definitely part of of stan lee's approach he had very very commercially minded well considering his career was almost over at that point so he invents Fantastic Four with Jack Kirby Stanley, Stanley Lieber also Jewish though not a practicing Jew rarely talked about but again assimilation anxiety interest in double identities empathy for outsiders that sort of, that sort of baked in and again you can say Peter Parker Mm-hmm. He is a Nebuchadnezzar archetype, even yeah. though as a character yeah. he's a, he's sort of you know, Gentile. And there are no explicitly Jewish superheroes until Kitty Pride from the X Men in nineteen seventy nine. Oh wow. Like that is the first time. Huh. Which is crazy. Mm. Given how important, given that half of them have been Jewish, Those the whole creators, time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most of the characters that Lee creates with Kirby and Steve Ditko are, are sort of children of the bomb. It's not, the, it's not a message. It's not like a nuclear war or you know, nuclear weapons are bad. But it's the context. A Spider-Man, Hulk, Fantastic Four are all transformed by radiation. Iron Man and Doctor Strange are these arrogant geniuses who aren't as clever as they thought they were. And they're all anxious about how to use their power. Stanley seems to have got the famous line in Spider-Man: "With great power, there must also come great responsibility." From either Churchill or FDR, oh really? Possibly, possibly Voltaire. They did variations of it. <laughs> More likely, given that <laughs> era, Churchill or FDR. But he's not like pushing a critique of the American Empire again. Like obviously, if you take the like, death of the author idea, you know, of course, you can read into this stuff whatever you want. But I think the, the important thing to sort of remember about Stan Lee is he's basically this centrist liberal Mm -hmm. who believes in generally groovy things (laughs) but thinks, like Barry Gordy at Motown, you know, politics is is bad for business. So so there's political potential, but he's not that interested in it. He's not into kind of social realism. So think here, the first black Marvel hero, 1966, is Black Panther. Mm -hmm. And what is he? He's an African king. (laughs) Like, he's not somebody... He's not somebody from America. It's nothing to do with the Black Panther Party, which is one of those weird coincidences Mm. where they basically emerged at the same time.
1: Although, I mean, until then, every depiction, you know, because you have a whole genre of jungle sort of adventure, and it's always, you know, those countries are just very primitive, very backwards, and, you know, when you see Wakanda, where Black
0: Panther is, it's highly technologically advanced, he's super competent. I don't think it's racist, but it's almost sort of, it, it removes it from the politics say, of civil rights. Right. He yeah, cr- yeah. created yeah. this distance. The X-Men, he said that he only made the mutants because he'd run out of ideas of <laughs> ways to, to have radiation-induced <laughs> powers, right? So he's just like... Pfft. And then when he does come across politics, it's in this very awkward way. So there's an issue of The Amazing Spider-Man from 1966, where Peter Parker... Another student protest? What are they after this time? Oh, God. Another student says, "Didn't you hear they're protesting tonight's protest meeting?" And then Peter gets really angry with them and thinks, "I better cut out before I give them something to protest about." So, a member of Students the Democratic Society wrote an angry letter and Stan apologized in a very Stan way. Who boy, chalk up another king-size blushing bullpen blunder. We never in a million years thought anyone was going to take our silly protest marches seriously. No. We wouldn't have spotted an issue if we'd stumbled over one. <sighs> Which is incredibly disingenuous. Incredibly disingenuous. <laughs> yeah. So basically you have to wait till, and this went, this went sort of viral when Stanley died, this 1968 Stan Soapbox column, mm-hmm. where he finally sort of gets out there and says something. It says, let's lay it right on the line. Bigotry and racism among the deadliest social ills plaguing the world today. But unlike a team of costumed supervillains, they can't be halted with a punch in the snoot or a zap from a ray gun. The only way to destroy them is to expose them, to reveal them for the insidious evils they really are. And that leads to the first African-American superhero, Falcon, who's from Harlem, and another Spider-Man issue about protest on campus, in which an angry protester tells Spider-Man, listen, Whitey. So he's, he's moving there. It's got to the point where the market is going that way. Mm-hmm. Young people, oh, high schoolers, college kids, they need a reflection of Vietnam War, civil rights. Protests. That makes sense, you know, because you often read
1: about Stanley that he was only properly galvanized when he started going to these campuses mm. and seeing that students loved the comics. And presumably, on some of those campus trips, he was starting to pick up a sense of where they
0: were at in terms of their politics as well. Yeah. And the same thing is happening in DC, where basically Green Lantern, a character created in the late 50s, is ailing. And, and one of the best things that happens in comics is a character is failing, mm-hmm. bound to be cancelled. And then you give it to somebody young and hungry. Mm-hmm. and go do what you want because you have nothing to lose here and then something amazing happens so he pairs Green Lantern with Green Arrow who is, is now the sort of basically socialist street fighter he's basically Robin Hood yeah and writer Denny O'Neill thinks of Green Lantern as like a cop Mm-hmm. Like a good cop, he doesn't get the big picture. And Neil was really into the new journalism. He, he wanted to be like Norman Mailer and Jimmy Breslin, and he was going to kind of take comics to the streets. And the critic Abraham Reisman, who has a great archive of writing about sort of ideas in comic books mm-hmm. on the Vulture website, calls their first issue "The Moment Superhero Comics Got Woke." He'd obviously never heard someone say to the Spider-Man, "Listen, Whitey," so. <laughs> but they meet an old black man in the ghetto, and mm-hmm. shockingly, like this is drawn by Neil Adams. And this was the first time that black people were actually drawn like black people, Mm -hmm. and was like white people coloured differently. Mm -hmm. Pretty fucking alarming that it takes to 1970. And he says to Green Lantern, I've been reading about you, how you worked for the blue skins, and how on a planet someplace you helped out the orange skins, and you've done considerable for the purple skins. Only the skins you never bothered with, the black skins. I wanna know how come? Answer me that, Mr. Green Lantern. And Green Lantern, who was sort of representing America, I suppose, or liberal America maybe. Mm. He just looks very sort of shamefaced.
1: I think there's a there's about three panels in what you just described. Yeah. As far as I remember, the pretty much the first ever piece of political content I ever saw. I was about sort of six or seven right. when I came across those. It was sort of reprinted in a in in a Batman comic I was reading as a kid. And I remember it blowing my mind. Like, I have every inch of that drawing is seared into my mind. And I came across this quote not long ago by Daniel O'Neill, the writer, who said, my first glimmering of social consciousness was hearing as maybe a six or seven-year-old Superman on the radio telling me that the difference in skin color was only because of a chemical called melanin, and people were all the same. And what I find, I was really moved when I read that, because I thought, oh... Because you're the guy that then wrote the thing that had that impact on me when I was six. And and that, I
0: suppose, is the thing where a lot of this stuff is rather gauche and didactic. Oh, sure, yeah. But they're dealing with, in this, it runs for 14 issues. They deal with pollution, overpopulation, race riots, feminism, Native Americans, trade unions, (laughs) and the Nixon administration, right? New York Times runs a long piece called Shazam! Here comes Captain Relevant. And this changes in the way that... That's what I love about, I suppose, the story of comic books like pop music is that it's this wonderful sort of opportunism. The the amazing thing is that someone comes up with a good idea and everybody's just like, we need to do that. Mm -hmm. So Stan Lee suddenly is just like, oh, okay, let's do that. So you get get Luke Cage, you get Spider-Man's friend, Harry Osborn, becoming a drug addict, which broke the comics code It was the first Marvel comic not published under the Comics Code. Mm -hmm. The Comics Code was rewritten to allow the representation of drug use as long as the drug users weren't having any fun. Then this feeds back into what Denny O'Neill's doing, and Green Arrow's sidekick Speedy becomes a junkie. And Denny O'Neill being... This gives you a flavour, perhaps, of the uh, the tone of this. Some will say the following story should not be told. There'll be those who argue that such events have no place in an entertainment magazine. Perhaps they are right, but we don't think so. Because we've seen these noble creatures, human beings, wrecked, made less than animals, plunged into hells of agonies. We've seen it. We're angry. This is our protest. Lil on the nose. Yes. But actually gets a congratulatory letter from the mayor of New York, John Mm. Lindsay, for alerting people to the perils of drug use. And this is what Grant Morrison, who is obviously a great comics book writer, but also a great historian of comic books, and he says this is the relevance phase. And Stan Lee just comes all the way out and just goes The radicals claim we're too archaic, the conservatives claim we're too liberal, the doves call us hawks, and the hard hats call us peaceniks. No matter what we write or draw, half of you disagree, and just between us, that's the way it ought to be. Mm. Which kind of makes some sense out of the <laughs> nutty news items that assail our senses every minute. Yeah, but I mean, even, he's still just so evasive oh, so, and no, like, he's vacant. He's like centrist to his core. <laughs> but suddenly he's just like, yeah, the social issue. So, so, and I think what you've got there is the market demands it, right? Mm. Then you've got these writers that are younger and they're shaped by the 60s. And Lee and Kirby were shaped by, like, the Depression and the war. And mm-hmm. you know, people who really grew up in the 60s. A lot of them are living in New York. At the time, New York is, like, pretty hairy. Mm-hmm. And so they do want to kind of get the world outside their window into the comics. So there's a kind of relevance. It's not necessarily left wing, but it's just like, okay, it's a little less the adventures of Crypto the Superdog. Mm. And a little more like, oh, no, my psychic is a junkie. There's some good stuff here, right? There's some good stuff in this, in this relevance phase. Yeah, there's some great comics. I mean, I, you know, the, it's, it's a sense of growing pangs, right? And I
1: mean, you can look at it and it is didactic, it is. And, and it's unfair as well, because by the way, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow thing, it's like no one's under any illusions as to which side Denny O'Neill is on. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, Green Lanterns is just always wrong. There really yeah. is no even handedness about it at all. Essentially, that feels to me like the first time since the code that things are becoming more, exp- that there's an attempt to grapple with reality, rather than, you know, searching for this creative outlet to to sort of escape from the code. Yes, yes. It's the beginning of, of it refinding its sort of creative
0: Footing. And you've got Captain America, Steve Rogers resigning in disgust over a kind of Nixon-like villain. Steve Englehart said it was taking place during the Vietnam War and here was this guy wearing a flag on his chest and everybody was embarrassed. Uh-huh. You know, So Captain America becoming disgusted by America is like a major thing. Wonder Woman becomes very women's lib in a kind of 70s way. And perhaps the nadir of good intentions. Are you aware of this story? You must be aware of this story. The 1970s story, I Am Curious Black. Oh, fuck me. In which yeah. Lewis Lane gets Superman to darken her skin for a day so she can discover what it is like to be black. To me, that really sums up. Like, we are <laughs> trying to do the right thing here. <laughs> and, okay, sure, perhaps it's not perfect. And I suppose that I've always got a soft spot for, like, incredibly misjudged good intentions. Mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. not one of the best stories. But almost like once the phase passes. It leaves this trace element of the real world in everything. So Chris Claremont takes over the X-Men, also Jewish. And he turns them into this, this metaphor for diversity, for bigotry. He makes the X-Men diverse. Mm-hmm. He kind of really leans into this sort of stuff. And 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 he said this this stemmed from working on a kibbutz in Israel in 1970. Huh. Talking to Holocaust survivors, seeing sort of, you know, planes fly over. So it brought home international conflicts on a very personal, immediate level. It wasn't reading it in a book and saying, ooh, that's terrible. It was like, this is what it is. It's in our face. I came to a point where I was wondering, is this something I can take the lessons of and try and use them back home to make things better? Is he
1: the one then that, I mean, obviously anyone that's seen the film will know sort of Magneto, you know, comes from the Holocaust. and it, Does that come from him or was that already there? In the...
0: So he then later introduces Magneto as someone who lost family in the Holocaust, does not say he was Jewish, left it open that he might be Roma. But he's the one that's really kind of... And this fascinated me as well, that really leans into the idea of, like, Magneto as kind of what happens when you react to persecution in a very kind of negative, aggressive way. And it's often seen as Magneto as Malcolm X, Professor X as True. Martin Luther King. And he said, as a white writer, that he felt that would be presumptuous. And he says he was actually basing it on Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. Oh my God! He said he said he could, what the hell? He said he could start out as a terrorist in 1947 and win the Nobel Peace Prize 30 years later. Huh. And that was the kind of thing that he was interested in. And even his love of strong female characters, he said, was based on seeing female members of the IDF. But he is somebody that introduces more female characters in a short space of time than almost anyone else, at a time when most female characters are just like She-Hulk. Spider woman, (laughs) you know, and he's like going, what if there was a female character in her own right and not just the IP protecting lady version of a male one? And so much of it's flawed and that's kind of what I love. The master of kung fu there's this amazing exchange between doug munch the mm-hmm. writer mm-hmm. and a fan an asian american fan keeps writing in and complaining about the shade of yellow they use for the asian characters or why they're using fu manchu or why they're using this stereotype and what doug munch does is not go shut up stop being so woke he's like yeah good point we'll change the shade huh. i'll think about how i write this character like there is a sense of sort of respectful learning and exchange, which feels quite modern. Even at
1: its most sort of cloying and infuriating, I agree that intention mattered and that it still was quite important. In the 1990s, there was this sort of comic company, this sort of imprint called Milestone, which is done exclusively by ethnic minority writers about ethnic minority superheroes. And one of them, this character, that there's a sort of a guy that represents Luke Cage, and, you know, who would speak in those sort of 70s Marvel comics in exclusive sort of black exploitationese. Oh kind yes, yes. Character.
0: Sweet Christmas.
1: Right, exactly. That exactly that kind of thing. So they had this character called Buck Wilde, who is basically a Luke Cage sort of parody. He dies, and, and the character says, Years before I arrived, Buck Wilde was already there fighting the good fight. Although we may from our current perspective find him crude and ill-informed, we cannot deny his importance. Intention counts as much as actions. And Buck was nothing if not well intentioned. While we winced on occasion at his embarrassing speech and demeaning behavior. More often we cheered him on, because whatever else, he was always a hero. A hero for those of us who had no heroes. So even for for people that would then write comics themselves twenty years later, those characters as embarrassing and sort of bludgeoning as they are you know, still had some importance, even if they weren't quite perfect finished product
0: in any means. You know, and you can have, like, you know, Black Panther for all this sort of, like, exoticizing of mm. him. Well, then he ends up becoming the main character in this landmark blockbuster. That's the joy of it. It's like stuff can be laid down and sure, and it's imperfect and it's flawed and whatever, but then there's stuff that people can work with later. Mm-hmm. 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 After the relevance phase, the next massive twist is like this sort of post-punk British invasion. What do they make of superheroes? What does this generation of creators do with them?
1: It's all reliant on a comic, a British comic called 20 which Came out in the late seventies, really, as try to try to just make some money off Star Wars, but it was taken over by people like Pat Mills, John Wagner, Carlos Acuera, who were really quite punk and really disliked authority. And 2000 AD, as a British comic, was a much more aggressively rebellious, outsiderish comic than really anything out in the states. The classic example is Judge Dredd, who is sort of simultaneously a villain, a sort of fascistic villain, and a hero. And the writers from that magazine, in what's called the British Invasion in the 1980s, 80s, just sort of take over in the States. The first is Alan Moore, who you mentioned earlier, who just essentially what this period is, is deconstruction. They deconstruct what they're looking at. And he looks at these heroes and just thinks, what would they be like if this was the real world? And he decides that they'll be sort of impotent fascists, basically. (laughs) They'll be, you know, sexually dysfunctional, militaristic, imperialistic, obsessed with the right. He writes Watchmen, later turned into a very successful HBO TV series, rather different. And you have things like characters sort of saying in this alternate version of the 1980s you have two characters looking at a violent riot being sort of quelled by superheroes really acting for the state and one of them says what happened to the American dream and the other one says it came true and you're looking at it and another point you have a character who's looking at Dr. Manhattan who's the sort of nuclear superhero who won Vietnam for the US in this alternate history and he says to him you know if we'd lost here in Vietnam I think it might have driven us crazy as a country Uh, (laughs) and you have this very like sort of British, cynical view of superheroes. Adam more you know, coming from a very left-wing perspective. And I think what, what's then quite interesting is that you then get a response from the right in the form of
0: Frank Miller. Because this is happening at the same time, right? The Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns both come out in 1986, so they've been working independently of each other. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like, not a response, but a kind of weird parallel or mirror image, mm-hmm. where Frank Miller... Believes in superheroes and he certainly believes in vigilante justice. And in this one, you know, Batman has been kind of neutered by these bleeding heart liberals and it's all gone to pot. And they think they can, you know, the psychologist who thinks he can reform the Joker obviously it turns out to be fatally wrong. And what you really want is like a kind of no fucks given murderous Batman to sort things out. And so it's really interesting that these two things are sort of seen as both together, comics get gritty, comics get kapow, comics grow up. Mm But one of them is almost like Alan Moore was trying to make the last word on superheroes. Because they're very much golden age characters, aren't they, that he's sort of parroting there.
1: Yeah. They're the former Charlton Comics Company characters that have been bought by DC and sort of mangled them up a bit and set them loose.
0: So he's sort of like, well, this is what superheroes would be like in real life. And what a mess that would be. And Frank Miller, who actually very intelligent, fairly sophisticated writer, some great work and Mm -hmm. and places like Daredevil. And Dark Knight Returns is very clever. But it is ultimately endorsing the violent side of superheroes. You've got somebody who basically hates superheroes. And, and uh, he does that in Marvel Man as well, Alan Moore, doesn't he? He's basically trying to take them down. But that's not the message that people get.
1: It's extraordinary because it's this left and right vision like you're saying i mean it's one of them is saying that it's wrong and the other saying that it's right yeah but actually they both agree which is essentially with the position that you were expressing you know <laughs> as it was expressed to ago, yeah. of
0: the ubermensch you know of this idea that it's essentially a fascistic sort of genre this seismic kind of moment in the history of superhero comics is sort of dramatizing the criticisms of the 1940s
1: yeah it is it is then along comes someone else from 2000 ad called grant morrison who's a Scottish writer. He has a very interesting childhood. He, he sort of grows up near RNAD Colport, which is where Trident the nuclear missile system was kept. And he wrote, And the bomb, always the bomb, a grim and looming rain-coated lodger, liable to go off any minute, killing everybody and everything. So to him as a child, I think it's almost the supervillain, basically. Mm-hmm. And then he finds comics. He says, I was beginning to understand something that gave me power over my fears. Before it was the bomb, the bomb was an idea. Superman, however, was a faster, stronger, better idea. Superman is so indefatigable a product of the human imagination, such a perfectly designed emblem of our highest, kindest, wisest, toughest selves, that my idea of the bomb had no defence against him. And Morrison, further on, later of that mm. British invasion, completely rejects that view from Miller and Moore of they're fundamentally fascistic. His view is actually not at all. In fact, there's almost nothing to point towards that, that in fact they are outsider heroes, they're representations of our better selves and of what we. Aspire to be. And I think this always seems so pivotable. For me, with comics, you know, when you go back to Gladiator, what's funny about the medium is specifically that everyone takes it for granted that they want to do good. They don't go into that question of, oh, maybe I should murder people, or, you yeah, know, yeah. And that, whatever. They just think, no, you want to, you want to help people, you want to serve society. You know, with great power comes great responsibility, and that sounds, you know, like a sort of tiresome with a cliche, but actually, in that, I think is is quite a left wing idea of you have a responsibility to the society that you're in. You're supposed to help people, not simply act for yourself. And I think Morris and brings that stuff back with a lot of conviction against the much more jaded, cynical views that have been around in the late
0: 80s. A lot of these former 2008 AD, I mean, they could be quite didactic and they, were, they you know, didn't mind this sort of like passionate sort of like anti-Thatcher, anti-Reagan mm-hmm. politics, mm-hmm. which seems like a more positive legacy than this sort of misunderstanding of, of Watchmen, which Alan Moore said in 2001, he says, I think what a lot of people saw when they read Watchmen was a high degree of violence, a bleaker and more pessimistic political perspective, <laughs> perhaps a bit more sex more swearing. He said that in the 15 years since then, he said, I tend to think I've seen a lot of things that have been a bizarre echo of somebody else's bad mood. And you can see this sort of brutal cynicism still now. And I think what Ron Morrison then ended up doing was saying, actually, the more radical thing now, everything goes in cycles, right? This is the more radical thing: is actually heroism, to take a fresh look at at heroism. When you see the films now, the, the stuff that people are coming
1: away from when they're looking at these films, it is this debate now taking place in cinemas. I mean, I really like the Nolan films, right? Right, yeah, it yeah, takes yeah, on yeah. A, yeah, yeah. You know, Dark Knight Rises, really any of those films, they are fantastically entertaining, well-made, reactionary tosh. I I do think that it it takes in that Frank Miller stuff and I think it is deeply reactionary. And then I think if you look at the moments that people really love from Marvel films, I would say, you know, sort of Captain America standing up against Thanos at the end of Endgame. That is that Grant Morrison sort of view of like, no, old-fashioned, decent heroism is like a radical act. You see this stuff playing out on your cinema screens now. And of course, that goes doubly so for, for sort of questions around representation and diversity as you see that play up on the screen.
0: Well, yeah, because the whole thing, the whole challenge of Catch America was how do you make a virtuous man interesting? Mm-hmm. And actually the movies made him one of the most interesting characters precisely because he was trying to apply this kind of old-fashioned sort of wartime yes. morality to sort of the noble sort of side of that era and, and, and just trying to work out how that operates now. And that's been a kind of really intriguing and I think quite unexpected Development. So I think if we're looking at what's going on now, in recent years, I think there's sort of two areas to look at. One is what's going on in the comic books, where there has been more sort of diversity. But, you know, you've got Miles Morales, which is a, a alternative Spider-Man. His dad is African-American. His mum is Latin-American. Yeah. And he proved hugely popular.
1: Massively popular, and now popular with cinema audiences as well, because um, he featured yeah. in, in the cartoon. You have Ms. Marvel, written by the Muslim Jay Widow Winson, who's a sort of Pakistani-origin teenager tremendously popular about to get her own tv show i mean for a while sort of thor became a woman you have tim drake who's the third robin recently came out as bisexual john kent superman's son also sort of acting superman for the time being also came out as bisexual you see a focus there in fact dc went through a sort of change of leadership during the pandemic where they brought in a lot of new blood to the top positions and actually it really feels like that's Delivered a jolt of a sort of demand to increase diversity. Marvel itself had a similar sort of program. I mean, even in 2017, David Gabriel, Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing, said, We heard people didn't want any more diversity. People were turning their noses up at new female characters, anything that was not a core Marvel character. Now, that's really been pushed to one side, and Marvel seems much
0: more on board now. I think he was wrong as well, because in 2015, I did a feature on female comic book characters, spoke to G. Willow Wilson, and she said, Marvel said, they said, we want to create a new teenage female American Muslim superhero and put her on her own book. I thought, you're insane. You'll need to hire an intern just to open the hate mail. (laughs) (laughs) So when all of a sudden everybody was talking about it, I was stunned. I believe if we tried to do the exact same book even five years ago, the response would have been very different. Mm. And I actually think that guy Marvel was out of step because actually you do see this sort of diversity. And I think the really important point to make is that it is in the spirit of these comic's going back a long way. Like the X-Men in the 70s was a real attempt to be diverse. I mean, back then, diversity meant one of them's Canadian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know?
1: It's crazy. One of, the, it's called yeah, that,
0: yeah. one of them's German. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was a Native American for a while. You know, th- th- this sort of effort was made. It's just now that perhaps it's just less awkward, it's less ghost, that you can have a but, see, I think the more back, characters like that. It, it goes back even, not, even further than that, right? You know, when you look
1: at Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster mm. coming up with Superman and what they were trying to express there. When you look at Grant Morrison carrying away from a nuclear bomb and, and finding it in Superman, representation, when you look at Peter Parker as the nerd, you know, bullied, but has this inner power, then you take Black Panther in the cinemas, you take Ms. Marvel as, as a comic book of, like, this sort of awkward, nerdy Muslim teen, you know, in a country that still has huge amounts of Islamophobia. You see the same process which is this extraordinary capacity for this kind of representation of the outsider to give people an inner determination. It's one of the things that Marsden was hoping for, funnily enough, with Wonder Woman, of little girls, by looking at this, will feel stronger, will believe they can. And I think that runs as a thread throughout the history, and soon, really not very far away from now, that Ms. Marvel TV programme will come out and she'll be in those films. And I think the reaction to her will be the same as the reaction was to Black Panther and it will give people a tremendous sense of identification and of potential in a way that
0: this genre, I think more than any other, has the capacity to do. And it's logical as well, because in 1961, 62, when you create Spider-Man, and you want this kind of like outsider, this awkward, despised outsider at his high school, fine to have him as a white guy. Now you just think, okay, if you want that sense of outsider to, you're not going to choose a white guy. That mm. like, it, it makes sense. This sort of cheerful Diversity, and I think this is where Kevin Feige, who is the oversees the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he does have something of Stan Lee, the the sort of canny liberal centrist.
1: I see. Uh, that's like, a really good point. You know, he, he yeah.
0: never comes across like he's going. You know, even when he was talking about Black Panther or whatever, he never comes across like, yeah, this is what you need because this is what America looks like now. Mm. He was always in this kind of friendly, like, hey, why not? Yeah, kind of way, and, oh, it, and following the market. Following I mean, the you market you take again, that which is true,
1: is what they are doing with the women in Endgame, where suddenly it's like oh, all the women stand united. Do you think that? Let's not pretend that you've been ahead of this
0: curve. This so, so <laughs> feminist. It's not you know the whole nonsense that it's sort of these things are sort of woke. One, they're part of the DNA. Two, it's what audiences want, apart from a few cranks. And that I suppose is what interests me. That we're, we are still talking about ways to use power. What is your responsibility to others? How might society react? You know, and you're seeing what happens when there's much more sort of thought now. I don't think a lot of these ideas are political, clearly they're not. I mean, do you think that even by thinking about what it would mean to have superpowers? Even by thinking about how a world would react to people with superpowers, you're you're getting into sort of politics, not necessarily left right, but you're getting into ideas, aren't you? Because what's politics about? It's about power and how you use it. Yeah, I just you know what I've always found those ideas to be the least interesting because you just think,
1: well, it's just a bunch of nonsense, isn't it? I mean, if we try the more realistic you try to make it, like the more preposterous the whole thing becomes. What what always sticks with me, and the reason I think we see this this through line is, originates with the idea of comics as a trash medium, as something that was sold next to candy in the 1930s and was presumed to have about as much sort of educational or intellectual or creative value. And that opening the doors to outsiders, not just in terms of ethnicity, but also in terms of the personality type that was there to work in it, that it opened the door to trying out various things in a way that meant that, for instance, on certain sort of postmodernist traits that were there in the 50s in comics way before they were being sort of tried elsewhere. And in pushing forward youth culture as something against conformist society, it was all present about 20 years before people recognised it outside of comics, that that Sort of vivacious, boisterous sense of outsiderism comes from the product and is now being transmitted across the world in these sort of huge corporate. Products that despite their corporate nature still carry within them in the DNA that messaging and that I think is a fundamentally very, very healthy, very, very exciting and quite an affirming message to be putting out to audiences. That
0: idea of trying things out, that I think is why it's this unique medium. In terms of storytelling, it's comparable to pop music, I think, in the fact that you you can really take a punt, try things out and it might go terribly wrong, but never mind. And what was great about comics is that they were cheap. I mean, not always great for the creators who were often exploited. But they were like cheap and fast. And some of the things that we are now seeing in billion dollar movies were created by these brilliant oddballs because the editors were just, you know, because the boss of the company was just like, well, we don't know what to do with this character. And that's where the shot in the arm comes from. And I suppose that's why it's always worth going back to the roots of these ideas. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Origin Story. If you have any thoughts, questions, recommendations, brickbats, bouquets, please send them to originstory at podmasters.co.uk. And if you check the show notes, uh, we'll write about the books we've been reading, which includes some um, really excellent resources. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. origin story was written and presented by dorian linsky and ian dunt with music and audio production by me jade bailey the group editor was andrew harrison and origin story is a podmasters production